very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's full interview, just go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. Give yourself the gift of truth. And if you want to unlock your full potential, go to SanitasRadio.com and listen. It's your life. Take control. When we think of Egypt, we think of an era of few thousand years ago. Could the time frame be incorrect? We've also heard of a global cataclysm that changed everything 12,000 years ago. Could the pyramids and other Egyptian monuments may have been created by the dynastic Egyptians or not? What about Baalbek in the Beka Valley of Lebanon? There is a cut stone there weighing 1,000 tons, the equivalent of 13 Boeing 747s. How were they moved? To answer these and more questions, tonight's special guests are two modern-day Indiana Jones. It's great to know there are people in this world who are not satisfied with what has been written in our history books, and they take the proverbial bull by the horns and conduct their own research. Their fascination with ancient history and with trying to decode what the ancient ones left behind is what drives them. I could spend a large portion of the show reading their bios, but you can read them on our website. Today's special guests are Brian Forster, a veteran of this radio program, and Stephen Mailer. They are both authors. Brian's latest book is titled Lost Ancient Technology of Peru and Bolivia. And Stephen is also an author, with many books, his latest is Where Pharaohs Dwell, One Mystic's Journey Through the Gates of Immortality, co-authored with Patricia Corey. By the way, I just so happened to have interviewed Patricia last night directly from Rome. Brian and Stephen have also appeared on History Channel's Ancient Aliens. Their websites, hiddenincatours.com and chemitology, that's G-H-E-M-I-T-O-L-O-G-Y.com. And directly from Cusco, Peru, and Colorado, USA, I would like to welcome Brian Forster and Stephen Mailer. Gentlemen, welcome to Veritas. Thank you, Mel. Thank you, Mel. Always, always a pleasure. And, you know, I know Brian. I've been following you for, for years now. I'm new to, to the work of Stephen Mailer, but one of our good, good and loyal listeners, Kurt, sent me some information, some so a few weeks ago, and said you have to have Stephen also. So what a great combination to have Brian and Stephen here with us today. You were both in Egypt recently. Why don't you, first of all, give us a recount what you found 
in this most recent trip? Go ahead, Stephen. Well, um, this is an incredible connection, as you've mentioned, Mel. Uh, I would just briefly like to let people know that I've been actually involved in the study of ancient Egypt all my life, uh, since I was about eight years old. But seriously, since 1968. And I've, I've been to Egypt 19 times over the last 22 years. And this connection with Brian, though, is very significant. Uh, I, was, I was fortunate to have had an Egyptian teacher. That's what the website is all about. People can learn about him. His name was Abdel Hakim Awiyan. He passed away in 2008. He was 56 years, an active tour guide and an indigenous wisdom keeper. Now, how Brian and I connected is there's a woman named Carmen Bolter. I introduced her to Hakim at Cairo Airport in September 1997. And she uh, since has done a series of, of videos called The Pyramid Code, which featured Hakim, came out in 2009. Brian had seen these videos, and he connected to Hakim, and he thought there was something really strong there. And one thing led to another. We connected on Facebook, and we have since become colleagues and co-workers. We have done three tours we call techno-spiritual tours in 2013, which also featured the great Chris Dunn, and, and this past April. The reason why we call them techno-spiritual tours, just so the listeners understand, the ancient people did not separate. In other words, there was no separation to the ancient people between what was technological and what was spiritual. It was all the same. And so we combined these things in the tour. We had a wonderful tour. What is really great about our tours is the people that we attract. We attract all different types of people, from engineers, physicists, chemists, uh, uh, geologists, and, and spiritual people who've been on the path for many years. And that, that action is combined. And so what happens with our group is our people usually find new things for us. Every time we go, I come, every time we go to Egypt, I give people an introductory talk, and I say that it has never gotten old for me. It never does, because we find something new each time. And Brian has been very instrumental in the last three tours in helping us to find new things. And so we can talk in detail about the things we found this time, but it is part of our group that our group actually become explorers with us. They find things that we've never seen before. So each time we go, we always find something new. And Brian has been... Brian has been an amazing component on these tours. Absolutely. Let me just say this. I recently interviewed our good, our mutual friend, Carmen Bolter, and I've watched The Pyramid Code, and I was very impressed with Hakim. And I had no idea until I interviewed uh, Dr. Bolter that he had passed away. What a loss. He was a great man, wasn't he? He was a great man. and He was uh, not only my teacher, my master, but he actually became a father figure to me. He, he adopted me as his oldest son. His family is, is, is what we continue to work. When we talk about what people go to chematology.com, they see that it, it is the Kemet School of Ancient Mysticism. It is founded by his second youngest son, Yusuf, and his wife, Patricia. That's who we do the tours with. And so the work continues. He was an amazing man. And the more we find out that there was a family legacy, it was not just him, it was his uncle, his grandfather. This is a family tradition of what we call wisdom keepers, of people keeping the hidden knowledge of what ancient Egypt was about. And Brian, too, now has become adopted into the Arian family, and he's a member of the family, and he gets the access to all of these things, too. Well, that's great. Brian, what's your reaction to your latest trip? Well, I think one of the most profound things was we had Susan Moore from Canada, who's a geologist with us, uh, for the second time. And she was able to re-identify some of the stone, um, commonly 
most of the of the granitic stones are simply called granite, but she was able to re-identify some of them as granodiorite, um, diorite, and uh, cyanite. And that way, we can, in the future, be able to try to track down other quarries, because most people think that all of the granite in Egypt that was used in the Giza Plateau, etc., came from Aswan. But it's possible that some of it came from even farther away. Aswan is 500 miles from Giza, but it's possible that some of the stone came from Central Africa or even farther afield, which is quite profound. Right. Now, about going back to Hakim, did he see eye to eye, and I think I know the answer, with Dr. <laughs> Sahih Hawass? <laughs> That's a question that's been, you know, I've been, I've been interviewed for over 20 years on this, and that question came up a lot in the 90s and 2000s. So, uh, Hakim created a new discipline. He used to say to us, if you don't like the system, create your own. So, people should understand that he was a credentialed Egyptologist. He had dual degrees in Egyptology and archaeology from what was then called Fawad University in Cairo, 1952. It is now Cairo University. So he was a trained scientist, a trained archaeologist, Egyptologist. But through his work, through his family, indigenous wisdom teachers, through meeting great teachers throughout his life when he was a young boy, he realized there was a lot more than what Egyptology was teaching. So he created a system that we now call chemetology, because chemet was the term of the ancient civilization, meant the black land, the dark, rich alluvial soil that the Nile she deposits every time she, she, she floods, which is the basis of the agriculture. So the black land, it never was called Egypt. Egypt was a Greek name, came from a Greek combination. So he decided to create a new discipline. And the discipline basically says that there was a previous civilization, a previously highly advanced, developed megalithic civilization way before the so-called dynastic period, way before the time that Egyptology says was the civilization. So we call it Kemet. So that's why we developed the system chemetology. And this is where Brian Foster came right into the picture. Because for years he's been studying civilizations in Peru, in Bolivia, in ancient Polynesian, in, in, in Hawaii, in Easter Island. And he has recognized that there was a previous megalithic civilization. We see it at Pumapunku. We see it at Tiwanaku. We see it in the, Cus in the Sacred Valley of Cusco. So Brian's been looking at this for years. And now he comes to Egypt in 2013 and he sees that Egypt is a storehouse of megalithic ancient civilization. So this is the theme that we work with. We work with the idea that there were previous megalithic civilizations all around the world. We search for evidence of them, but that Kemet, which was only, not only Africa, but was Asia and Europe too, was all centered around the world and spread its knowledge around the world. Brian talked about the fact that Susan Moore, who's now become the Kemet School geologist, she has done an amazing work redefining the stone for us. We now know that there are two other quarries for Egyptian granite that we have to look for. And as Brian said, granite is just a general term. She is now giving us the specific types of granite to look at. Like he said, cyanite, which is the beautiful rose quartz granite that comes from Aswan. Uh, and there's also rhyolite, which is a purple granite. So there's different types of granite. It's just not enough to say granite. We're now being able to differentiate and through the use of Yusuf Awiyan, who's also a stonemason, we now know that at least 10 different types of stone that we can identify that the ancient Egyptians commissions used. At least 10. You know, we always told Christopher Columbus discovered America, but we all, we all know that he rediscovered it. He just opened the doors or the, 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 the navigation for the Europeans. Brian, you're being 
pretty much connecting dots throughout South America for years now. Now, with your involvement in Egypt, have you seen parallels between the civilizations of the Inca, the Maya, the Aztecs, with the what you found in Egypt? Well, in in some cases, yes. Um, I guess you could say that uh, in the Cusco area and Machu Picchu, you see the polygonal masonry or the you know stone on stone contact without mortar or cement, etc. And some of the walls have these very curious protrusions or knobs on them, and that it really shocked me when uh, we went to the <clears throat> the third pyramid, the so-called Menkare, uh, on the Giza Plateau, and that um, construction technique is almost exactly the same as we find in Cusco, literally five blocks from where I'm sitting right now. So there is that, but you also find some other uh, major differences. We see a lot more um, high-technology tool marks in Egypt, as in saw marks, drill holes, etc., which you don't really find in Peru. So people you know, try to say that um, all of the megalithic work in Peru and Bolivia and Egypt were done by the same culture, but that's, it's not necessarily true, but I think we're looking at the same timeline. We're looking pre-cataclysmic 12,000 plus years ago. Exactly. What, what we are seeing is local variation, no doubt about it. The, uh, particularly at Pumapunko, Tijuanaco, uh, uh, the wonderful zigzag designs that were very unique to the, to the South American cultures. But what we do recognize is, as Brian has said and continually says, lost ancient advanced technology. We see the same type of work in the igneous stone. Again, granite being seven on the Mohs scale, MOHS, the, the scale that geology uses for hardness of stone, diamond being 10, uh, corundum and ruby being nine. So granite being seven because of the quartz content. Uh, we see andesite granite in, in Peru and South America. We see the, the cyanide granite. We see the same type of ability to work in stones, but definitely local variation, no doubt about it. The, uh, uh, the, the ancient uh, Bolivian people were very unique in the type of design work they did in very hard stone. But we believe that there were contact. In other words, there's a famous quote that's been used by many different researchers. David Hatcher Childress has used it. Gunnar Thompson has used it. It is a quote that says, the oceans were not barriers, they were highways. And Brian is a sailor, and he knows how people use the currents and the trade winds. And that's exactly how ancient people traveled all around the world. This is why there are pyramids all around the world, which is why we are finding this ancient megalithic structures all around the world. This was an ancient worldwide culture, not just an Atlantis that was centered in the, in the, in the Mediterranean. It was a worldwide global culture. Obviously, we're going to be jumping around between the Middle East, uh, Egypt, and also South America. I have to ask you, Brian, regarding the Lake T Titicaca, 4,050 meters above sea level. Yet, we see a lot of uh, profusion of fossilized marine life there. How did that happen? Um, well, there are, of course, are different theories about that. Um, <clears throat> what we do know, geologically speaking, is Okay, is that um, Lake Titicaca originally was the ocean because you do find, as you said, um, a lot of um, marine fossils. Also, the water. Very high in so repeat that because I lost you there. Go ahead. I'm oh, sorry. 
<clears throat> well, also, also the uh, the water of Lake Titicaca is very high in salt content, not necessarily sodium chloride anymore, but magnesium salts, etc. And south of Lake Titicaca, we have the largest salt flats in the world. So what we do know is that at one time, 12,000 plus years ago, Lake Titicaca was about 10 times the size it is now. And um, there was a major upheaval that um, caused the, the land to slant from north to south, creating this giant salt flat. And in Lake Titicaca to this day, there are still seahorses. Hmm. So can we speculate that at one time Lake Titicaca was at sea level? Yes, it, it definitely was. Whether it, it was obviously some kind of giant upthrust that happened, uh, rising it up to approximately 13,000 feet. But whether that happened 12,000 years ago or 12 million years ago, there are many different theories bouncing back and forth. And can we speculate or maybe even conclude that some of these cultures, meaning the, the Maya, the Aztecs, the Incas, the Egyptians, were they in communication with each other? Because we're, we're led to believe that it was Columbus who united it all. But looking at their engineering, their, their, their megalithic structures, there must have been some kind of communication, perhaps pre-cataclysm or even after. Well, the great thing is that uh, Yusuf Awiyan discovered some glyphs at Saqqara, and I'd like Stephen to describe. Yes. Yes. Uh, Mel, I think we would both answer yes, yes to that question. Because, uh, again, <laughs> Good. Well, first time Brian came to Egypt, he was immediately amazed at, at the similarities he could see and the differences that he could note, but and the similarities. Uh, we have made some incredible discoveries in the Kemet School. That's why we ask people to go to the website. We have, and Brian is going to be on his way to Australia to see what I'm going to discuss right now very in the next month or two. Uh, there are what are known as the Gosford Glyphs. These glyphs that have been found on a, on a wall, a stone wall, way in the outback of Australia. They've been known for almost 100 years. Uh, many people said dismiss them as ultimate frauds. It couldn't possibly be true. We had our two experts, who was Yusuf Awiyan and our a resident Egyptologist, chemistologist. Muhammad Ibrahim, who specializes in reading the signs and glyphs, he did a detailed analysis they did together of these glyphs and then concluded they are legitimate. They are about 2,500 years old. They actually translated it. So there is some distinct evidence ancient commissions made it to Australia. Now, also what Brian has found, uh, talking about last year, we went into a tomb at Saqqara, one of the famous sites in Egypt, one of the oldest sites. Is thought of just being a necropolis, a burial site, but we know it wasn't once an active living site. We went into a tomb there, 5th Dynasty tomb, dated around 2300 BCE. We found an inscription on the wall. I translated the inscription. We're going to still work on it with everybody together. That description could have read as follows, saying the direction from Tawi. Tawi meant all lands, was another term for Kemet. There were many terms they used for their land, Kemet being one, the black land, Tawi meaning all lands, also another word for Kemet. Okay, saying the direction from Kemet to Pad-U. Pad-U is actually a Kemetian term. Per means house, U would mean many. So actually they're saying the term that they heard this country was called was a Kemetian term, many houses. So they're saying the direction from Kemet to Peru is across four waters. 
I would say those four waters would be the Nile, the Atlantic, the Pacific, and the Amazon. So here is an inscription 4,300 years ago, possibly stating that the dynastic or even more ancient Egyptians had already been to South America and had come back. Now, we're not saying that they named the country. It is a commission term paired U. They may have heard the indigenous people speak the name of their country, and Brian is much more adept at, at finding the indigenous uh, uh, origin of Peru, Peri, from the Mari. He can Amara, Amaria language. He can speak of that. But they may have heard the people say that that's their land, and they knew it was a term in their own language, and they saw that they had temples and pyramids, many houses. So they called Peru many houses, and we believe they were there over 3,000 years ago. Have we found anything else from Egyptian dynasty or even predating it anywhere else around the world? And I mention this because you probably have heard of the story of G.E. Kincaid, the man who allegedly in 1909 found a cave inside the Grand Canyon, which, by the way, right now is closed. Nobody can even get there, even the U.S. Forest Service. Have the, you... entire, the entire story is mentioned in my first book, The Land of Oh, can you tell us more about that just to refresh the listeners' memories? Again, yes. The Smithsonian would absolutely deny that any of what I'm going to say is true. This was in the Phoenix Gazette newspaper in April 9th and 10th, 1909, where it stated that they had found a cave in the Grand Canyon that had Egyptian mummy artifacts. It claimed that there was an explorer named G.E. Kincaid, just as you said. In those days, 1909, the Colorado River was much higher than it is today. He claimed he was rafting down the Colorado. He spotted a cave. He climbed up, went in there, and found all these artifacts. He reported it to the Smithsonian. The Smithsonian had a resident archaeologist named uh, Jordan, S.E. Jordan. He went and investigated. So there's two days running. It is on microfish. It can be still found today from the Phoenix Gazette talking about this find, saying that Jordan was enthused. All of these things were found. Now, if you go today and contact the Smithsonian and ask them about it, they said it was a total fabrication. Right. There was no such event. There's no such artifact. And they denied that there ever was an S.E. Jordan who worked for them. However, in the Denver Museum, I went and found the name in 1912 of S.E. Jordan being listed as a resident archaeologist for the Smithsonian. So that's one lie that we caught him at. So we believe there might have been so. It's interesting that a lot of the area around the find in the Grand Canyon have interesting names like Horace Canyon, Osiris Canyon, Aset Canyon. Where did they come up with these names? That's right. And <laughs> who named them? Who named those areas? Ah, yes. The Smithsonian did. <laughs> yeah, so that's the story. Uh, the story is many, many more stories. There are stories of Egyptian glyphs on Mayan temples. I've yet to see those. Maybe Brian, who's going to Mexico and seeing the Mayan sites, will see that. There also is a story that there are Egyptian glyphs on a, on a wall in northern Michigan Peninsula where they came to mine copper. So are there other instances around the world? Yes. Are there, again, we see glyphs in Australia. I have not seen any glyphs in Peru, but one of the things, and it was to Brian's graciousness that he invited myself and uh, Yusuf and Patricia to come from Egypt to be on tour with him last September. So I finally got to experience these sites with Brian. And I saw symbols that the Incas used that I believe are Kermitian. Another thing, in Tut's tomb, when Tut's tomb was uncovered in 1922, they found about 5,000 uh, didgeridoos and uh, uh, um, 
uh, the, the same thing used to bring come back a boomerang. I'm sorry, came back to me. They found <laughs> right. boomerangs in Tut's tomb. Now, there's people who argue with me that they're boomerangs in Africa. But boomerangs are indigenous to the Aboriginal. They're not indigenous to Africa. Well, isn't, the, isn't it the Australoid, isn't that allegedly the oldest tribe in the world? Well, we're now, uh, and I don't want to dominate this conversation either. I want to bring Brian back in. But there's now a great major controversy going on. There are a lot of Australia tribes now who are claiming that the Aboriginals never came from Africa. They're original people, blah, 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 blah. But again, we go back to Abdel Hakim. Abdel Hakim said that people just didn't come out of Africa 50,000 years ago or 100,000 years ago. He said people have been coming out of Africa for millions of years, and that millions of years ago, there were humans in Africa. So, it's a better question of what you want to believe. Uh, again, there's no doubt the apples are very old. They could be 100,000 years old, but we believe that everyone eventually... And again, this was Hakim's bias, his prejudice. I follow it. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm what you call an, Egypt, a, 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 an Africanophile. Uh, I believe that we all came from Africa. All right. And I'll come back. I'll come back to you regarding the Dogon. I'm interested in, in to get your take on that. But Brian, of course, when I think of the elongated skulls, I think uh, you're right on top of the list. When I think about that, we think of these pictures, these paintings in Egypt, and we see the elongated skulls there. Many people think that maybe they were using helmets. Is there a correlation between the, say, the skulls we see in Paracas and Egypt and those paintings that we see? Well, actually, the, uh, excuse me, the shapes are quite different. Um, what we found in, in Paracas and Peru in general is um, many different cultures had elongated skulls. The most profound ones are from the Paracas area, just south of, uh, four hours south of Lima. Those are the vertically conehead ones that are very famous on the internet. People think that they're Nephilim or Anunnaki or aliens or whatever, but we don't really know. But all that we have, as far as I know, in Egypt is we have depictions. We don't have actual skulls. But obviously, um, Stephen and I and our group went to uh, the, um, the city that Akhenaten built. And uh, we went inside uh, different caves that had a lot of depictions of elongated skulls. So obviously, Akhenaten was trying to tell us something about the ancient Egyptians, but he was doing it in, a, in an artistic and an almost enigmatic kind of, uh, kind of way. But if, if you look at the depictions of the Egyptian elongated skulls and, and the Paracas, um, they're of uh, different uh, design, but equally as large. But again, the actual um, evidence of their, of their being elongated skulls in Egypt, I have absolutely zero knowledge of. I've never seen an elongated Egyptian skull. You know, I remember, I'm glad you mentioned how people say those are Anunnaki or aliens, but I remember a conversation I had some uh, with someone from the Dogon, Dogon tribe a few years ago, and they get really, literally, really upset when anyone attributes the pyramids or any other ancient monument that we can't replicate today to aliens, basically, they get mad that we're taking credit away from the ancient ones who did that. Do you exactly, exactly as did Abdel Hakim? People want to know what was his opinion, and it's exactly what you said. He said we insult our ancestors by thinking we needed somebody to come down from the sky to help us build pyramids. 
it's the equivalent of maybe if there's a cataclysm here on Earth right now, in a hundred years, people start digging and they find plastic and they think, whoa, that civilization was the plastic people. As if, you know, but anyway, that's a, it's a humorous joke there. Uh, so, no, it is true. It is true. But Brian has brought up an interesting conundrum and I would just like to expand on it some because this has led to so much controversy that he and I both deal with on the net daily and on Facebook. Akhenaten allowed his artisans to portray himself, Nefertiti, and their daughters as having severely elongated skulls, looking almost exactly like the Paracas skulls that Brian has found. However, we have the, some of the mummies. We, have, we don't have Akhenaten's mummy, although it's claimed. We have his mother and his father. We have uh, his brother. And, and we have Tut. What Brian is talking about, what seems to be a unique feature of some of the family genetic lines in Egypt, is a distended cerebellum, meaning that if you go to the back of your head and feeling right at the back of the base of your head, up there is a part of the brain we call the cerebellum. It is part of muscular activity, muscular basic coordination and things like that. What we see in Tut and we see in a lot of Egyptian mummies is a distended cerebellum, much larger than it appears normal skull tower. However, they do fit because my background is pre-med. Uh, I was once going to get a doctorate in anatomy, human anatomy. I know it pretty well. Uh, those skull, touch skull still falls within the normal parameters of a skull. The Paracas skull that Brian is showing are a total different ballgame. You're talking about a much larger brain case. We average around 1,600 cc's, cubic centimeters, from our modern brains today. Interestingly enough, some of the early humans, uh, Cro-Magnon, we can talk about, actually had bigger brains than we do. And so did Neanderthal. But we can talk about that. But the Paracas people, had a brain case over 2,000 to 2,400 cc's. So they obviously were more highly intelligent, highly superior type of people. And Brian could fill in about what happened to them, perhaps. But well, we don't see that in Egypt. We have not seen any elongated skulls in any of the mummies, any of the things found in Egypt. However, I am utterly convinced that one day, if it probably will be Brian Foster, we'll find the fact that there were elongated skulls in very, very ancient chemists. And I think Akhenaten was trying to identify with some ancient group of people, not aliens, never said that, never discussed that. But he was trying to identify with probably a, maybe another highly advanced race of humans who did have those type of conehead elongated skulls and were in Africa too. Uh, other parts of Africa do show that. So we know there must be elongated skulls in Africa. Just to let people know the truth though, no elongated skulls have yet been found in Egypt. Nothing like Paracas like Brian showed us in Peru and Bolivia even too. Nothing like that. I'm so glad that we're having this conversation and some of the people are going to criticize me for saying this because just like we lose different species almost on a weekly basis, what if we lost some species? The elongated skulls one, the homo fluorescensis in Indonesia, another one. Why can't we say that a lot of this happened with other species that are no longer around. And that's, that's the case, Brian. What happened to that species? Beautiful. Well, that's a very good point. And, and you bringing up the hobbits that uh, were recently found in Indonesia is, is a point in case. Archaeology, um, to some degree, tends to be quite rigid and dismissive until a huge amount of evidence is thrust in their face. And in the case of the, the uh, Florensis little people, 
they they could no longer deny that that you know that they were not Homo sapiens sapiens. They were a subset of humanity. So it's quite possible that um, you know that there were many different subsets of Homo sapiens sapiens or branches of humanity, small populations such as the Paracas, who appeared from no one knows where. And um, over the course of time, they interbred with normal people. The elongated skulls began to disappear, and then cranial deformation began to bring back the appearance of that. Um, that's why it's, it's going to be very important for us to do DNA, <coughs> DNA testing of the Paracas and other cultures in Peru to see if there are distinct genetic differences between them and what we call normal human beings. Have we, enabled, have we been able to collect uh, nuclear or mitochondrial DNA to be able to test these? Uh, we are in the process of that. We're working with the Peruvian government. Um, we have a, a major Peruvian archaeologist who's heading the study. We have the laboratories um, outside of Peru, unfortunately. <clears throat> Excuse me, because Peru does not have... DNA, uh, ancient DNA labs, nor radiocarbon facilities, but we have everything set up. We're just waiting for the final paper to be submitted to the government, and then it's all systems go. Are these independent laboratories, or are they linked to governments, or you know where I'm coming from? No, they are independent, <laughs> and that's what we that's what we're definitely working with. And everything will be a double blind study. They will not know where the uh, where the, the DNA material has come from, so that they cannot have a subjective analysis. It has to be objective. Lloyd Pye, I'm, I'm sure you you knew who Lloyd Pye was, right? Oh yes. Did he did he have any impression? Of, of the the elongated skulls and what was his his uh, did you know what he said about the elongated skulls? Yes, I was in conversation with Lloyd for more than a year, just uh, until his untimely death, and he was convinced that they were not Homo sapiens sapiens, that they were definitely a different branch of uh, of humanity. Um, you know, the, he had the door was open for him to to believe that they could have been of um, some kind of extraterrestrial descent. However, the only way we're going to find out is to have um, very thorough DNA testing done. And you see, whenever I hear the word, and because I deal with this topic probably 70% of the time, so it's not like I don't want to look into this, but whenever I hear this is extraterrestrial, let's say we, we have the elongated skulls and we have DNA testing conclusively proving that they're not human or homo sapiens fully, fully. How do we determine that they're not from another place on our own planet and we have to exactly. always point up? Why? Exactly. That's well, a good first point. Of all, first of all, Mel, you'd have to have a standard. We're talking science here. And Brian and I are scientists. We don't disdain hard science. If you're going to talk about alien, you have to have a template. We would have to have an alien body with alien DNA already recognized. All you can say now exactly. is it is not normal human doesn't mean it's not another subhuman species, which is what I believe they are. I knew Lloyd Pye personally. I handled the Star Child skull personally. He stayed in my house in Boulder, Colorado in 1999 after we had done a tour in Egypt together. I personally examined the Star Child skull. My opinion, and it is only my opinion, and it is another form of human. It is not alien. I don't see the evidence of alien yet until we find a definite alien body that we can do with DNA fully enough. Exactly. Don't you need a point of reference in order to uh, say... That is what science is about. 
And I know people criticize science, but that's the best that we have right now, folks. You know, whenever I hear people saying those pyramids must have been made by aliens, if we die today, if there's a cataclysm today and people find an iPhone, an iPad dig somewhere and they have sticks and stones because that's what happens, I think that we have wiped ourselves out time and time again because we evolve more technologically than spiritually and we repeat the same cycles again we forget our history and commit the same mistakes again so if you have sticks and stones and we find what seems to be a computer or if you drop a computer on top of the the brazilian you know amazon and the tribes take it what will they say oh this must have been made by a god or somebody from outside of why can't we just say we just don't know how to make it but it doesn't have to be from outside well, again, Good it's, point. It's, again, it's the popular media, it's the popular literature. Eric Van Donegan started all of this with God, the gods of the gods of the gods of the gods in the 70s. And Chairs then of Zach- the gods, right. And then Zachariah Sitchin, who, again, I know him, I knew him personally too. We could talk about Zachariah Sitchin. But uh, again, I was a big follower of Sitchin in the 80s. Again, let's try to make a clarification here. Because again, Brian has also dealt with a lot of indigenous people. And the way indigenous people talk about these things is very different to the way we talk about it in the modern way. Talk about when people would come to Abdel Hakim and ask him about the alien question, he would always want to not talk about it. Why? Because he thought we were too obsessed with it. The fact is that every indigenous culture you can dis- study will say that we are starseeds. We'll all talk about the history that we have come from other stars. This is not our native planet. This is a way planet. From many different places, we are starseeds. Maybe we have been genetically manipulated to create the human race, as Sitchin, as Van Donegan, all these people believe. That is a possibility. But the idea is you insult our ancestors. You just brought up the key point, Mel, cycle. That is the feature of what we teach in chemistry. It is the main theme of my first book, Land of Osiris. We don't believe in a beginning. We don't believe in an end. It's just interminable cycles. So civilizations have risen and fallen, risen and fallen, risen and fallen. And you're exactly right. When we go through the cycles and we come into the cycle we're in now, which we can discuss the last 5,000 years, we are born with a veil over our eyes. We forget who we are. We have to go through this lifetime and remember who we are. And so we taught by religion that we're one thing, we're taught by academia we're one thing, we all have to find out for ourselves who we are. And again, we don't disdain science. I have three degrees in the sciences. So Brian is a trained scientist. We disdain academia. Well, as Brian said, archaeology gets locked into its paradigm. Academia gets locked into its ideas, doesn't want to change, doesn't want to hear anything new. That's not what science is about. Science says it could be this. But it also might be that. Let's gather the evidence and see how much is this and how much is that. Quality, quantity. You do analysis. You do observation. You do repetitive. You do repetitive work. You just don't come up with an idea and say, this is it, unless somebody else can repeat that same idea. We don't disdain science. We love science. But we love pure science. Science, which is open to all ideas and possibilities. You gather the evidence. You gather the data. Okay, this theory is better than that theory. We'll go with this one instead of that one. But instead of this locked in, it has to be this, it has to be that. We couldn't do this. Aliens had to be this. Had to, no. And, and just to correct one of your introductions, I have never been on ancient aliens. I have turned them down three times because of the way they deal with the subject. Even though I and Hakim would say, yes, we are starseeds. Yes, we are. <laughs> so it is a conundrum. It is a 
conflict that people don't understand. When I get on Facebook and I say, no, why are you saying aliens built this? You're denying your own ancestors. We know, Brian and I know, that there were highly advanced humans on this planet in the past who were capable of incredible work in megalithic stone. And it didn't need aliens or lasers or any super uh, uh, technology from space to do it. We were in the senses. We were in a cycle where we were in the highest senses. We, Hakim taught us we're born with 360 senses. If we are only using five, what does that say about us? I'm glad that you corrected me on the ancient aliens part because I was going to say something, but knowing that you declined, and I know, Brian, you've been with them a few times. I was in the History Channel a few years ago, and I was perplexed when I was in the van, and the director told me, hey, Mel, by the way, I need you to dumb down what you're going to be saying. <laughs> and I said, hold it. Please tell me again. Yeah, you need to dumb down what you're going to say. And I said, but I thought that History Channel was the last bastion of intellect. And they started laughing, looking at each other. So, and when you know that, that News Corp and Rupert Murdoch owns History Channel, you wonder how much truth comes out of there. I know there's some truth, there's some fiction, and at the same time, Zacharias Sitchin, you mentioned him. I was, you know, lucky enough to have conducted his last interview before he died. Wow. And I also found out that his office was located in the Rockefeller Center, Rockefeller Plaza. And we know for a fact that the Rockefellers are known cultural editors. <laughs> I wonder how much of what Zacharias Sitchin said was that. So you want more? You want more, please, Mel? Please, I know off, a lot take, more. <laughs> take off your gloves, please. Okay. First of all, I met him in 1992. We sat down and talked and talked and talked, and my impression immediately was that he was a one-trick pony. Everything was Anunnaki, Anunnaki, Nibiru, nothing else. I said, well, wait a minute, what about the stories about Deberon, this one, serious? No, no, Anunnaki, Anunnaki. Okay, one trick pony. I also am very good friends with Barbara Han Clow, who also was sure. a student of Hakim. In fact, it was Barbara Han Clow who first took me to the Ariane House in 1992. So Barbara said to me, she was the one who brought Sitchin into the public life. He was, had a contract with this ridiculous company, Avon Books. His books were first coming out in these cheap, poorly done paperbacks with no photographs, with poorly done diagrams, were terrible. She put him out in hardback. She did do diagrams, much better presentation of his work when she did it. However, she became very distrustful of Sitchin. What Barbara Hanklau has said to me, and I'm saying it to everybody here on the air, is that she believed Zechariah Sitchin was a Mossad spy. He was born in Palestine, and it is an agent of the Israeli government, and that he has a distinct agenda for wanting to say that warfare came from the aliens who came into the Middle East. So the Middle East should always be a bastion of warfare because we are descended from this warlike Anunnaki who fought these great wars of gods and men. That was his second book, uh, 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 and et cetera, et cetera. For an agenda to keep the idea that there should be perpetual war because it's in our nature. It was bred into us by the Anunnaki. Let me say another thing. There well, was he, was born. he was born in Azerbaijan and raised in Palestine. Exactly. And there's evidence that he was connected to the Messiah. Uh, also, he, um, there is not one Sumerian scholar today, either academic or alternative, that, dis that agrees totally with his translation. He was all by himself. And it's pretty clear he may have made some of them up. You are saying what I suspected and didn't want to utter 
on this program. So well, I'm glad that you said you're, you're in the public eye. I do this all the time on Facebook and I get attacked as Brian knows and people come after me and blah, blah, blah. Oh, you know, this and that and this and that. But, you know, we have to tell it like it is. I mean, there are a lot of other researchers out there today that are not honest either. This is why when you come across somebody like Brian Foster, you pay respect because there's a man that's honest and truly dedicated to what he's doing. But there are many, many people out there today that are just into ego, just into promoting their own self, self-identity and have really have not done the work. Why is it? I, I, I hate to interrupt you, but I have no. to ask this question that just because before it leaves my mind, why is it that a lot of the gatekeepers are always linked to Israel? Why is that? Uh, it's getting into a difficult subject. There. <laughs> um, there seems to be a world agenda now to controlling this information, to controlling this data, and it's definitely what you could call a Zionist plot, although I don't get into that as much as many people do. But um, there's definitely some, you know, action that's going on in the Middle East is very controlled. Brian can tell you that we were just in Lebanon. And there, too, it's very controlled what people could say about the site and where you go. Uh, it's the same getting more and more so in Egypt. Uh, I, what I tell people now is we tell everybody, come to Egypt. The tours are safe. But it is restricted again. It's getting back to the way it was under Mubarak. There'll be signs that you can't go here. You can't take pictures in this tomb. You can't do that. You can't do this. Again, to try to control. This was, you asked before about Zahi Hawass. This was very much a factor when Zahi Hawass was in control. Things were controlled, restricted, information controlled. But we have known, and Hakim always taught me the way to go around it, and we always do go around it. As I say, when we just go to Egypt, as we did, Brian and I and, and Yusuf, we go off on our own sometimes and we make incredible points. Yusuf has taken us into tunnels that go down hundreds of meters. I mean, we can talk about the tunnel. This, the system that we talk about, people see what's only on the surface. They see the remnants of tombs, of pyramids, of temples. We're talking about this stuff underground, which has never been adequately discussed. But if people go to Brian's website, www.hiddenincavideos.com, and look at some of the videos that Brian has done with Yusuf Aoyan under the Giza Plateau in the tunnel, you see how amazing, amazing this and speaking of what we were saying, are you familiar with the Busegi Mountains in Romania? A, a Israeli helicopter just crashed there last week. Again, we see them all the time. Why are why are they such a strong force when it comes to gatekeeping? I, I see them in the UFO community all the time. You ask certain questions and you're ridiculed. You ask certain questions about Egyptology, same thing. I just wonder why. Such a small portion of the population is always there to cut and close the door to any inquisitive mind. And Not folks, always, Mel. Not always, Mel. It is the cycle. Again, we are in a cycle. We talk about five stages of the sun being some of the basic teachings of chemistry. These cycles are the daily movement the sun makes, also represent developing aspects of our consciousness and times in our prehistory cycle. So in other words, we're led to believe, and again, this is coming from Sitchin. We're come to led to believe this actually was a big movement in the 60s, which I was very important part of, 60s and 70s, in the academic discipline of anthropology. There was this idea that we come from these killer apes. There was one called the Human Zoo, one called the Territorial Imperative, Robert Ardrey. There was another, I, I can remember these names. It was basically saying we are the way we are because we've come from violent, meat-eating pro-ancestors. Again, that was then transferred over with Sitchin, say we are the way we are because we come from violent, warlike Anunnaki. 
and it's, all, it's a justification for war. We don't agree with that. And again, Mel, it has not always been that way. Well, we can talk, uh, that's we a... talk about we talk about this time prior to twelve thousand years ago in Kemet. There were no gods. There were no religion. There were no priests. There were no kings. There were no wars. It is what is written about as the golden age in the literature of every indigenous people. Speaking so of the not, apes. So the important thing, Mel, is it's not always been this way. It is the cycle. Well, exactly. But they don't want us to know about what you just said. There was a time on this planet where there was a universal peace, no wars. And, you know, speaking of the apes, what Zechariah Sitchin said, obviously he believes in evolution, if that's the case. How come we don't see a, a, a fossil with the ape slash human in transition? We only see one or the other. You're talking about the, the great conundrum of uh, physical anthropology, missing, yes. links, missing links. We're always looking for the missing links. <laughs> now, Hakim believed we are we have been human for millions of years. So, in other words, we just didn't involve Homo australopithecines or Homo erectus a million years ago. Uh, it, those again could be, as Brian mentioned, subside species. I don't believe australopithecine ever came to Homo, and I don't think we came from Homo erectus or some of these others. I think Homo sapiens has been here for a long time. And may have been introduced. That's possible. But it is the cycles with risen civilizations of risen and fallen because we go into a period where we're using all 360 cents. That's how we built the curve. That's how we carved the Sphinx and made all these incredible megalithic structures using all the senses that were innately born. Now the question is to either of you, what happened to our DNA, just like I, I think our DNA is a code, just like we have right now, say Windows 8.1, and we used to have DOS. Why did we go from Windows 8.1 to DOS, which is what we the equivalent of what we have right now? What was our DNA downgraded in a way? Well, that's where again you can you know if you can look at different theories that um, it's possible that two hundred thousand years ago human DNA could have been manipulated. Uh, one of the strong points of um, of Lloyd Pye, he was not an academic, but he did a lot of serious research into the so-called evolution of humanity. And actually, I come from a um, you know I spent four years studying um, evolution as part of my uh, science degree, and I honestly asked one of my professors, what if I have a bit of a problem with some aspects of Darwinian evolution? And his very fast <laughs> reply was, you won't have a future. <laughs> so, so he, um, so, so I, I, I quit, I quit um, pursuing academia after that because I saw I was being enclosed in a box. But what, um, what Lloyd found out and is quite profound is that there isn't really solid evidence that one species of so-called human evolved into the next. There are amazing gaps in time and certain physical and anatomical excess, uh, et cetera, attributes, which they believe resulted from uh, one species coming from another. But it's not really a hard science. Um, so we're not talking about a missing link. We're talking about multiple missing links. Um, and that's my opinion on the subject. Yeah, that's true. Uh, in fact, Brian is absolutely right. It's never been established that one species has ever evolved into a new species. Species evolve within species, no doubt. And there's selection, no doubt, natural selection. So a lot of, you know, we don't totally throw Darwin out. 
But this idea of linear evolution, that we've come from the primitive to the complex, is false. Because, and again, though, where we differ, I, I know, I, again, I knew Lloyd. Lloyd was a big fan of Sitchin. That's why uh, uh, we don't see that necessarily 250,000 years ago is this major jump that we've become human and before that worry. Again, Hakim says there's evidence, and we will find evidence, that humans are millions of years old in the same body structure that we have today. But, so that we didn't, we didn't evolve from these other earlier species. But the question most of us who look at, 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 at what you're doing and you're searching, you're stepping outside the box and stepping outside of academia to get us the real information that we'll never see in the history books. The question is, we see how the ancient ones was ne were not as advanced as we are. That's what science tells us. Oh, those backward soulless savages sometimes when we think of the native tribes around the world. Yet we see these monuments in Mesoamerica, in South America, in the Middle East. How is it that we don't say, if we cannot replicate those megalithic structures now, did we de-evolve? Yes, and actually that's where the cataclysm, or at least the most recent cataclysm, comes into place. There's a lot of scientific evidence that the end of the ice age, uh, last ice age was about 12,000 years ago. It was global, it was hyper-catastrophic, and that is when these these brilliant cultures or culture collapsed and then we descended into this period of darkness and survival mode, uh, especially, you know, the great work of Barbara Han Clow on that. And so for several thousand years, we were basically cave people because we had lost all of our sense of sophistication. And it took, you know, thousands of years before the re uh, the renaissance happened of about five to six thousand years ago, where rebuilding began. But what we're being told by most academics is that we were you know, ignorant hunter-gatherers up until five or 6,000 years ago. Um, but science is telling us that this major um, global event happened 11,700 to 11,900 years ago. And Stephen can, of course, elaborate on this. No, Brian is absolutely right. And um, we actually uh, would even put a wider stance on it, 14,000 to 11,000 years ago. It may have actually taken thousands of years for the full effect. But, I mean, again... One of my dreams was to go to Pumapunko and Tiwanaku with Brian. What we see there, you see maybe three feet of silt at Tiwanaku. I mean, it was a massive flood. And to go back to what you said before, Mel, I believe that those sites, Tiwanaku, Pumapunko, were at sea level. And the cataclysm upthrust them. I think Machu Picchu was much lower than it is today. Again, uh, this is the work, not only of Barbara Hank Clow, as Brian has mentioned, she, she published a book called Cataclysm 9500 BC. People want to go to a source book. This is it. Written by two British scientists, Alan and Delaire. They discussed this massive evidence of the cataclysm all around the world. And it's just clear that the evidence is there. No, academia is, again, there's a famous quote that's been attributed to John Anthony West. It actually wasn't him, but it's before him. When a new idea happens, three things occur. First, they ignore you completely. You don't exist. Second, when you start getting adherence and you get some disciples following you, they attack you vociferously. But they don't attack your theory. They attack you ad hominem. They attack your credentials, your background, etc. Finally, the third stage, when all the old dinosaurs are dying out, all the young people in the field are now absorbing the new, the new theory. Accepted as fact. They say then we knew it all along. 
<laughs> That's right. That is speaking of John Anthony West, he'll be with us in a couple of weeks. Now, he's after the dean, he's yes. the dean, the dean of alternative researchers was a great influence on me. I I met him personally in Egypt '92. He used Hakim as his tour guide from the mid '80s to the early '90s. Yes, yes, wonderful man. Now, after the cataclysm, did the knowledge disappear, or was it sequestered by a few? And perhaps, and, and bear with me here, I'm speculating. Perhaps that's why we see multiple languages, cultures, religions to keep us divided. Divided people are easier to manipulate. That's because- the last part of the cycle. You're correct. You're, you're absolutely correct. This is what we call the mystery school. This is what you call the wisdom tradition, the oral tradition. There has never, Hakim would say, nothing never totally disappears. Always can come back up. Again, it is the cycle. And I just want to correct scientifically something we said before. Our DNA did not change from the cataclysm. DNA did not change, but the senses were lost. In other words, to build pyramids, carbon, to do the megalithic sites of Brian C's in Peru, Puma Puka, etc., we were in all state of consciousness, using 360 degrees of our senses, 360 senses. After the cataclysm, we started to wane. The cycle changed. The senses started to disappear. There were always this group of people. We call them shamans. We call them wisdom keepers. They knew the cycle was changing. They knew senses were waning and we were going to lose that consciousness. They did techniques, whether we can say the discovery of psychoactive plants, breathing techniques, whatever we think of today that people do to to keep consciousness high. They kept those techniques going. They created religion. They created the idea that there's only a select group of people who can talk to deity, who can talk to the divine. I mean, this is, I'm, I'm really basically taking my whole second book, encapsulating it into five minutes for you. But well, this is how religion began. Religion began. In other words, we say prior to 12,000 years ago, we see no evidence of organized religion. In fact, I tell you, I see no real evidence of organized religion as we determine it today before 5000 BCE. So... What happened? These group of people control the information that it is what it is today. We're still coming out of this last cycle. There has always been this elite, this group in this last 5,000 years that know that if you control information and knowledge, you control energy, you control people. That is your religion. Somewhere along the line, there was an unholy alliance formed which was between the burgeoning priesthood this burgeoning religious class and the wealthy warrior class who became the conquerors, who became the polit- political system. They formed this unholy alliance. We work together. We feed each other. We keep the people ignorant. We control. It is the same way today. I could never, and again, no offense to anybody who's religious. I grew up a Catholic, but I could never understand why is there a toll booth on my path to enlightenment. Why can I have a direct connection if I have to? And you mentioned altered states of consciousness. I recently had a chat with uh, Dr. Rick Strassman about the spirit molecule and the fact that our pineal gland, the nervous endings, are just like the ones that are behind our eyes. So it can see. It just doesn't need light to see. And what's happening? We take fluoride. We take all these chemicals all the time. The calcified, you know, that's one one of the many senses that we probably had hundreds, if not thousands of years ago. True. True. But again, the, the beauty of this teaching is they can't stop it. 
the cycle will change. We are in now the cusp, which is why we're doing what we're doing, why we're bringing all this material out, why you have this radio show while Brian and I are on Facebook doing what we do is because it is the time now. The cycle is changing. Senses are opening. People are ready for this, ready to know that what we've been taught, what we've been told is not the way and it's not inevitable. In other words, the big thing, people want to know, why are we doing this work? What good does it do for people today to know how we lived 12,000 years ago? To understand that it has not always been this way. It is not always inevitable. And war is not inevitable. Hatred, violence, prejudice, nationalism, and all of these isms are not inevitable. We're going to come to consciousness. Hakim left this plane less afraid of going to the other side than any human being I've ever met in my lifetime. He was supremely confident that nothing's going to stop the tide, that he said, we're just riding a wave, the cycle will change, people will wake up, and we will know who we are again. And this is the work we're doing, to finally let people know who we are. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Those are the primordial questions. I think we lost Brian uh, but we have to take a one and only intermission. So right. what, why don't you tell us how can people learn more about your work, uh, Stephen, your books, your website, and then I'll, I'll, on behalf of Brian, I'll give his. Uh-oh, we dropped. Uh, I... Oh, no, we're good. Okay, we're good. Okay, uh, our website is www.chemitology.com. It is the, you also can Google the Kemet School of Ancient Mysticism. My books are listed there. One's called Land of Osiris. The other's from Light into Darkness. I also did a book co-authored with uh, uh, David Hatcher Childress about crystal skulls. That might be something we want to talk about another time. Sure. Uh, I'm one of the premier re crystal skull researchers. And so all the information is there. The biographies of Hakim. We're working on a definitive video documentary of Hakim right now. And the Kemet School has really taken off. We've done these three great techno-spiritual tours. Next tour will be with Brian Foster April 12th, April 18th to 30th, I think it is. Um, uh, 2016. It's on the website, and it's going to be a great, great tour. And Brian, as I said, I lost him. We'll get him back on the other side of the the segment. But his website, Hidden Inca Tours, he has a a few books out there. His research on the elongated skulls is just absolutely fascinating to me, and I keep following him all the time. And I'm so glad that he has linked with you, Stephen and, and Carmen and Dr. Carmen Bolter and and the rest. And he's now looking into Egypt as well, because once you have all these people sitting in this brain tank, I am so excited to know. It, it, even, I think, Dr. Carmen Bolter heard there was a new discovery uh, around the pyramids or under the pyramids in the past few days. I think you're aware of this, right, Stephen? It's at, uh, it's at a site called Hawara, where it supposedly is the so-called labyrinth discussed by... Exactly. Life. Uh, not, we're kind of skeptical of that right now, so we have to make okay. sure that more, more things come out of that. But again, I would tell people, uh, Brian Foster lives in Peru, in Cusco, and in Paracas. He's married to a Peruvian woman. He is as indigenous as anybody. Anybody wants to go to Peru, Bolivia, there's no one else to go to, but go with, but Brian Foster. Folks, don't go anywhere. Mel Fabregas here on Veritas. Fascinating talk. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to VeritasRadio.com, click on Members, or subscribe. Or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, detoxified iodine, supplements, a USB drive with all our shows, gift certificates, rebounders, and much more. Now... We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, 
and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy!